Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Father, we do thank you for the privilege of gathering together in your name. Lord, I thank you for this precious family called Ignition that I get to be a part of. Lord, all these men and women that love you, that just want to worship you, that are hungry for your word, Lord. And I'm, I feel so privileged to be the one who gets to bring the word every week uh, and to be the one who's called pastor here. And Lord, I do pray that I would be an effective servant for these men and women that are sitting before me, that you would use me to encourage them, to bless them. So I pray that you'd fill me with the Spirit now as I begin to open up the Word and, and, and share what you've put on my heart to share. We pray that you would give us understanding to your Word. Lord, that it would not merely hit us intellectually or even just hit our ears, but Lord, that it would penetrate our hearts and that it would bring true spiritual growth and real change on the outside of us, Lord God. So we submit ourselves to your word once again. We surrender to it. We look to it once again as the authority uh, for life, for living. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we continue to make our way through the book of Genesis, we've seen a lot take place. God has multiplied the population on earth. And we've called this series Multiplied. And it's the reason he's multiplied the population of earth isn't because he wanted life on earth, but it's because he wanted relationships with you and with me in heaven. His, his end game is saving souls and to, and to populate heaven. But what have we seen? We saw sin introduced in the garden, and it wasn't long after that that it had spread everywhere. And what did God do? He hit the reset button by flooding the earth. He started all over with one family, Noah's family and with his son's family. Well, then it wasn't long after that that sin spread again. And man was heading down the wrong direction rapidly. But instead of wiping mankind out, what God did was he hit the reset button by confusing the languages at Babel. And we looked at that as well as we studied the book of Genesis. Where God confused the tongues, created all these languages, and then everyone kind of went to their own tribe that they could understand their speech, and they spread out. And we had from that the nations. And then from these nations, God called out one man to separate from the rest of his people to create a new nation. A nation that would be known as God's nation. That God would personally govern. A nation through which his word, the history of creation, would be preserved. The book of Genesis itself was preserved through this nation and a very important nation through whom the Messiah would be born. The Savior of the world would come through this nation. This was all a part of God's plan of salvation that He spoke of to save us from our sins. And He he created this nation. Of course, it's the Israelites, the Jews. He created them calling Abraham out of his country. He said, go to a land that I will show you. He sent him to the land of Canaan, the promised land. But before the Messiah could be born... God had a work to do in this very large family but very small nation. And God had a work to do in the land of Canaan itself. Namely, decrease the people of the land of Canaan and increase his nation. Increase the Jewish peoples. And one of the ways that we see that he does this in the book of Genesis is by sending a famine to the land of Canaan. 
while at the same time making provisions for his people in the land of Egypt so that they would literally become a great nation. I mean, they multiply so great that 400 years later, Pharaoh's like, uh, we need to do something about these Israelites because they outnumber the Egyptians. They grow into a mighty nation. So with all this in mind, with the timeline of salvation and the history of the world in mind, how now at this point will God get Jacob and his 12 sons to a foreign land out of the promised land to Egypt? And how on earth would they prosper in a land where they're counted as abominable? Hebrews were about, you were as an Egyptian, you weren't allowed to eat with a Hebrew because they were people of the field. They worked cattle and you wouldn't, it was gross to the Egyptians. So how would, how would these foreigners, these Hebrews, prosper in the land of Egypt? Well, the answer to both of those questions is Joseph. The story and the life of Joseph. That is how God will draw them out of the promised land and provide for them in the land of Egypt. Joseph, and I should say a severe famine, is a part of it. I love what David Guzik said about this. He said, uh, God can and does use material need and lack in our lives to get us to do things we normally would never do. And that's true. When you become needy and desperate, you become open to a lot more options, huh? You become open to working a lot of different jobs when all of a sudden there's no food on the table. God uses need and lack to direct the Israelites out of the promised land. And so before we even get into our text, do you have some need or lack right now? Are you in a season where you're like, man, I'm desperate. I'm, I'm, I'm severely lacking right now. Material needs, maybe relational needs. Um, it, very, it very well may be God directing you and positioning you for blessing or positioning you for protection, or positioning you for effectiveness, right? God uses need. God uses lack, as we see here in the Israelites. Now, before we jump into our text, uh, those of you who have been going on this journey through the life of Joseph, you know and you've seen how Joseph, he's also uh, foreshadowing Jesus in a lot of different ways, and we've talked about that. But one of the main ways that, that Joseph becomes a picture of Christ is the fact that he's been rejected by his family and that very act of rejection is what ended up saving his family. The fact that Joseph was cast out of the family is what put him in the position of Savior. The same is true with Jesus. Jesus was rejected by the Jews and crucified on a Roman cross and that happened to be the method through which God would save the world from their sins. Isn't that amazing? This horrible act, this deed of rejecting the Son of God became the very salvation uh, that, that God intended to use. And in the next few chapters, we're going to see also some foreshadowing with Joseph and his relationship with the brothers as a picture of the Jewish nation. There's so much typology wrapped up in the story of Joseph, but we see that the Jews rejected Jesus initially but the Bible also tells us they will eventually receive him as Savior. And so the next few chapters of Genesis, we're going to see that foreshadowed as well. In fact, the Jews reject Christ even to this day as the brothers rejected Joseph. Even today they do that. 
But the Bible tells us that there's coming a day, Revelation, the middle of Revelation period to be specific, the tribulation period, where they will see the sign of the Son of Man in the sky and they will receive Christ. In fact, Zechariah 12.10 is the prophecy. And it says that they will look on me whom they have pierced. In fact, God, the Lord, Yahweh says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. If you're looking for a good proof text for the deity of Christ, Zechariah 12.10. When did Yahweh ever get pierced by the Jewish nation if Jesus wasn't Yahweh? If Jesus, if Jesus was not God in the flesh. So anyway, Jesus says... They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn as one mourns for an only son. We see this foreshadowing. And in the next few chapters, we'll see the brothers and we'll see Jacob mourn over their, their rejection of, of Joseph and receive Joseph as their leader. Receive him as a, a type of Savior as they come to him uh, to be saved. It's been 20 years since they rejected Joseph, 20 years of living with the guilt of selling him into slavery. And in this chapter, it all starts to resurface. So let's jump in and let's, let's take a look. It says, verse 1, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? So as, as the stage is set, the, 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 the play is enacted, I picture like, Jacob's reading the newspaper, right? And reading the news and all, all, the, all the latest. And, oh, there's grain in Egypt and we're starving. The pantry is empty of grain. The closet is full of skeletons and they're all about to fall out. Because as soon as Joseph, as soon as Jacob mentions Egypt, the brothers are like, they're all looking at each other. And, and Jacob notices. He's like, why'd you guys get all weird when we started thinking about going to Egypt? What's, go what's going on with you guys? Verse 2, he says, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. So he was very protective of Benjamin, being Rachel's only son that is left now. Verse 5, thus the sons of Israel came to buy among others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So God's chosen nation, this, this, this people group that God has promised to protect and to provide for, they're experiencing life difficulties. They're experiencing the tribulation that everyone else is experiencing in life. And I think it's important for us as believers to understand that just because you follow Jesus does not make you exempt from life's difficulties. You will be delivered from the tribulation period when God pours out His wrath and judgment on mankind because you don't deserve the wrath of God. Jesus paid that price for you. But Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. We see this in the chosen nation. They're experiencing the famine like everybody else. God will provide for them, but they still have to experience this famine. And be, be forewarned, guys, there are many teachers out there that will tell you otherwise. Hey, if you just follow Christ, you'll be rich. God has great things in store for you. It's like they kind of act like the Ginsu knife salesman. You know, this, Jesus will cut through anything in your life and He'll take care of it all for you and you'll never get sick. And if you do get sick and you don't get rich, it's because you didn't have faith. It's your fault. 
it's a, that's a false gospel that's grown in popularity in America over the last 50 years. And it's sadly, it's huge in Africa where poverty is, is through the roof. They, many, millions of people think they're not rich in Africa because they don't have enough faith because of false teachers. It's tragic. But that is the sign of a false teacher, okay? In this world, you will have tribulation. We see this in the nation of Israel. We will face famine. We will get sick. We will lose loved ones. We will come into economic hard times just like the rest of the world. We're not exempt from these things. But here's the big difference. As we face the trials of this life, we have hope. We face difficulties, but we have great hope in every circumstance. Because as a believer... When I face the hardships of life, I know that God is still in my corner. I know that God is working these things for my eternal good. Maybe even my temporal good. But I know that God has a plan. And no matter what I face, I can trust that God is still sovereign. And that God has a reason for it. And in that, I have hope. The non-believers, they don't have that hope. The rest of the world does not have that hope. The Canaanites surrounding this Israel nation, they don't have the hope because guess what? God is not for them. God is not working all things for their good. They can't face trials knowing that God is in their corner. How sad is that? It's hopeless. So that's the big difference. So here we have the Israelites facing this trial. The brothers now go down to Egypt with the exception of Benjamin. And they go down to buy grain just like everybody else. In other words, there's no exception to the way in which they have to seek salvation. And again, this is a foreshadowing. This is a picture of the Jewish nation. You know, when Jesus came, the Jews were like, hey, we're, we're the chosen nation. We're the chosen people. And they thought it was absurd that they would have to receive forgiveness from a Savior it didn't initially compute with them because they they would say things to Jesus like, we are children of Abraham. You were born of fornication, they they said that to Jesus. They said things like, "Uh, we are Moses' disciples. We don't need someone like you to tell us what to do. They thought they were above the Messiah, the need for a Messiah, at least the, the suffering Messiah. But when that day comes... And the Lord opens their eyes. Again, in the middle of the tribulation period is when it happens. They will understand their need for Jesus Christ as their Savior. And guess what? They will receive Him. I love the hope in that. I love the fact that I can see this Jewish nation that I know God has still chosen and God loves them. That that God is so faithful, He's promised to save them as a nation one day. I'm excited for them. You know, that day, that day is coming. But guess what? They will be saved like everyone else is saved. There, will, there won't be an exception because they're God's chosen nation. They will be saved through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, just like you, just like me. It's the same way. Salvation comes through, through one person. That's the Savior. Verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. We talked about this a few chapters ago. This is another way in which Joseph is a type of Christ. If you wanted to survive this famine, you had to personally go to Joseph. Again, and and salvation is only brought through Jesus Christ. We have to personally go to Jesus. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves 
before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where, where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. So it's, it's dawning on him right now. Do you remember the dreams? The, the brothers' sheaths of grain bowing to Joseph's sheath? It's coming to pass now before Joseph's eyes. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. They start volunteering information to try and make their story valid. No, my Lord, we're, we're all sons of one man. We are honest men. And this is Jacob. This is Joseph here. He knows his brothers. What, you, you said you were honest men? Okay. That's debatable. Um, your servants have never been spies. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. So uh, e- even amongst themselves, they're not... Well, of course, they wouldn't confess to this Egyptian ruler. And one we sold to you guys. Actually, he should be here somewhere. You know, they just started perpetuating this lie that Joseph is no more. Joseph died. He was eaten by animals. It's just become their truth by this time. You know they were nervous, so going into Egypt, like every, every male servant they walked by that was probably Joseph's age, they, I bet they looked really closely like, man, he, is he still here? You know, they were on edge just being there. And Joseph said to them, it is as I said, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. He said, oh, yes, yeah, stick him in that cell that I was in for so long. No, we'll see. He's not, he's not vengeful here. Like, he's not trying to get back at them. But this dream that God gave Joseph, it took 20 plus years to finally be fulfilled. 20 plus years. We have to have patience with God's plan for our life. Have patience. He's working, he's working things out. Okay? But here his brothers come and they're finally, they're bowing down to him. And the brothers are completely clueless. Like, they're not thinking of Joseph's dream. They don't even know this is Joseph. Uh, he's, according to the movie, he's got a shaved head and he's got eyeliner on, right? According to all the Hollywood Joseph movies. Uh, and so you wouldn't recognize him anyways because he he's wearing guy liner. And he's also talking through an interpreter. So they're, they're kind of interfacing with this interpreter, bowing. They don't want to probably look too closely to this ruler of the land. And so they don't recognize him. Of course, why would they assume this is Joseph? when they sold Joseph as a slave. It's amazing. They, no one would have imagined Joseph would have risen to where he, where he got. It was, it was all the Lord that did this work. But for Joseph, it must have been such a flood of emotions. Like he's just doing his work. This is what his job was. He's interviewing people. He's, he's really trying to find out if there are spies coming into the land. Like this is a legit concern for him. And he's determining, okay, should this person be allowed to buy and sell in Egypt? 
And all of a sudden, these brothers come walking in, and bam, like flash from the past, all these emotions start hitting him, you know, these, these guys that he grew up with. And it, it becomes so overwhelming, he has to leave the room in just a moment here. Um, but before Joseph comes out with the truth and says, guys, it's me, he, he wants to test them. He wants to test, he wants to see where their hearts are at. Are these guys still selfish murderers? Are they remorseful at all for what they did to me? And what seems to be his chief concern is where's Benjamin? Where's my, bro- my full-blooded brother? Because maybe they treated him the same way they treated me. And so now he's going to test them and test their word. Verse 18, it says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Stop there. He invokes the name of Elohim, of God. Now, he didn't use the term Yahweh, Jehovah, right? The, 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 the name of the covenant God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That would be a dead giveaway that he's a Hebrew. But he uses the general term for God, the God of creation, Elohim, the term that these brothers would have been familiar with. He didn't use one of the names of an Egyptian God. He says, I have fear of the living God. Do you? Do you fear God? I want to do the right thing and I don't want to be unjust towards you because I fear God. And then all of a sudden as he mentions the fear of God, it's like the fear of God rises up in his brothers. And they they respond this way. In fact, before we move on, it reminds me that the Bible says fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing God actually is where you start step one in making good decisions. In other words, when you view things through the lens, when you view life through the lens of I'm accountable to the living God, that's when you start making good decisions. When you go out and you live your life and you're free to choose sin or righteousness, you're free to uh, violate people or do good by people, when you understand you are accountable to the living God for your actions, God says that's the beginning of wisdom. That will lead you down the right path. He says, I fear God. Verse 19, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the, family, for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. It, it takes them a while to do so, by the way. Uh, probably months and months between this chapter and the, fall, and the next chapter. Verse 21, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Do you remember that moment when they rejected Joseph? They threw him into the pit. Do you remember how messed up that moment was? their little brother, they actually were plotting to kill him. And he's in this pit crying out for his life. And they sit down to eat their peanut butter and jelly sandwich and, and talk about what they're going to do. It's, it's this really sick, twisted moment of rejection that probably stayed with Joseph forever. And, and finally, God has cornered them In truth, we are guilty. The moment of confession 
finally comes. And Reuben, verse 22, answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. One commentator said, A guilty conscience sees every trouble as sin's penalty. When when your conscience is constantly guilty, every bad thing that happens to you, you're like, is this God punishing me? Is, am I finally getting what I deserve? Isn't that true? When you haven't dealt with your sin, you're like, man, God is finally getting back to me. When I was a younger pastor, um, I used to be quick to try and relieve someone's guilty conscience. You know, I'd take them right to the gospel, right to God's grace. Uh, people would come up, you know, after service and pray, and hey, man, Hebrews, Hebrews 6, Pastor Robert would teach you about Hebrews 6, and they come man, I, th- I, think I, I think I'm not saved. I don't know that I can be saved. And they have this guilty conscience. And early, early, I'd be like, let's go to God's grace. Let's go to the gospel and see what it says. But over the years, I've learned not to dismiss a guilty conscience too quickly. Because God uses that. Because I've started to recognize, I think God is doing something in this person. And maybe I shouldn't so quickly remind them of the easy out. Because that's not what God wants to do. God wants to address our sin. God wants to deal with it. I learned to ask people, hey, why do you feel like God wants to judge you? And I learned to ask myself these questions when I'm convicted. Rather than just being, well, well it's, it's done with. It's done with. Why, do I, why do I feel condemned in this moment? Or I'll ask them, well, what do you, what do you have in your life that makes you feel like God it doesn't approve of you. And right away, the thing pops in their head. You know, the thing that's giving them that guilty conscience. It's like, well, why don't you deal with that with the Lord? Why don't you take that to the Lord? There is grace. There is forgiveness. But listen, God is not interested in sweeping your sin under the rug. He wants to take it out of your life. He wants you to, to confess it, to acknowledge it's wrong, And He wants to forgive you wholly, fully. Hey everyone, Pastor Sean here. You've been listening to a teaching from Ignition Tucson, the Young Adults Ministry of Calvary Tucson. Our hope is that through this ministry, your heart would be ignited to live boldly for Christ. If you live in the greater Tucson area and you're between the ages of 18 and 28, we want to invite you out to join us in person. We meet every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus on Speedway in Camino Seco. We hope to see you there. God bless.